0: What's up, everybody, and welcome back to Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Today, we are talking about gear and gear trends and manufacturer sustainability with Mike Donahue, the owner of Outdoor Gear Exchange in Burlington, Vermont. And not only is Mike the owner of Outdoor Gear Exchange, turns out he was also employee number one at Outdoor Gear Exchange back in 1995. And since its early days, Outdoor Gear Exchange really established itself as a very core shop in the New England area. And as you'll hear in this conversation, Mike is someone who still is very passionate about skiing, multiple types of skiing, and riding bikes, and basically just getting outside as much as he can. Now, before we get going here, I just want to say a word about our upcoming Blister Summit. The dates, again, are February 12th through the 16th. And the big news is that we are opening the summit up to snowboarding solids and split boards this year. And so I've talked about this before, but it's worth reiterating again, this was always the original vision for the blister summit to have both ski and snowboard there. And so we are excited that that is happening and we will soon be announcing some of the brands that are going to be there. And some of the snowboard athletes too. So stay tuned for that. But this would be a great opportunity if you are planning to come to the summit and you've got some people in your crew who prefer to slide down on snow standing sideways. Well, now you can keep the whole band together. Come on over to Crested Butte and slide around on snow. However, you feel like doing that. Oh, and it's also worth pointing out that we have been getting nice snowfall around here. And one of the great things about Crested Butte is temperatures tend to stay quite cold all through the winter. So we are just stacking up a nice base right now. And it is really looking like this whole mountain is going to be in very good shape well before The Blister Summit rolls around in mid-February. So while we do like our steeps and our rocks around here, it's still always nice to see this place with a really nice base. So, And we are definitely building that base now. And get yourself those tickets to the Blister Summit. We'll include a link to the Blister Summit registration in the show notes of this episode. So click the link, go to our website, you'll find a ton of information, and we'll see you at the summit. Now, just one other thing before we get to my conversation with Mike, after my conversation with Mike here, we're going to do another installment of our new Crashes and Close Calls series. I think I'm shortening it to Crashes and Close Calls. I do like the word calamities, crashes, calamities, and close calls, but it's getting a little long, so we might just go with Crashes and Close Calls, but Joe Humphreys wrote in an excellent note talking about one of his, well, skiing calamities. And so we want to read that, and uh, it's a good one. So stick around for that after my conversation here with Mike. But for now, let's talk gear and gear trends and sustainability with OGE's Mike Donahue. Here we go. Mike Donahue. How are you today, and where are you today? I'm doing well, and I'm in Richmond, Vermont. Richmond, Vermont. All right. What's going on in Richmond today?
1: In Richmond, we've got some warming temperatures, getting close to freezing after uh, chill after Christmas. Uh, the ice is nice and thick because we got some rain before that, and I'm on the backside of uh, the Cochrane Ski Massif.
0: Oh, nice. <laughs> Nice. Um, well, listen, I'm looking forward to talking today, I mean, about some gear stuff, of course. It's kind of the what we do around here. But to talk a little bit more about your background and the history of Outdoor Gear Exchange. Um, your shop is certainly a fixture uh, on the East Coast, I think it's fair to say. And um, give people a bit of uh, the story. Uh, let's start with your own personal one.
1: Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Outdoor Gear Exchange began in 1995 and downtown Burlington, Vermont has a pedestrian mall called Church Street. And in that summer, I was between semesters in college walking down the street and was uh, offered a job as the first full time employee. Um, And I've been there ever since. Uh, The store was 800 square feet, uh, kind of a little hole in the wall, uh, used consignment, um, Army Navy feel. And uh, since 95, we've, we've grown, uh, grown it to a much larger store, single, still a single store location. Mm-hmm. And uh, on a website, gearx.com, that we actually started in, back in 1997. So we've had a, a kind of longstanding internet presence, but uh, kept it local and kept it uh, single location in downtown Burlington, uh, around 150 employees now. Wow. And, um, and we took over a flagship Woolworths and we're on two different levels. Um, Obviously do ski equipment, uh, all snow sports equipment, as well as uh, basically everything human powered outdoors, hiking, camping, paddling, rock and ice climbing, mountaineering, biking, um, you name it. Wow. So the roots
0: of Outdoor Gear Exchange were actually in consignment. What is that mix like today?
1: Consignment has been a staple for us throughout all of our history. It's still about 10% of our sales in store. Um, As we've broadened our categories and what we sell, uh, that's grown as well. And it's really crucial to us. It's a great way for customers to be able to um, get into sports that they're just learning about, uh, outfit families, try things out at a a lower cost. Uh, Depending on what you get, you can save 30, 40, 50% off of retail, or if it's been you know well used, but, but ready for a second life, it might be 80, 90% off and allows all kinds of people to try activities that are otherwise economically prohibitive. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And talk about your own background a bit more. Um, so you mentioned 1995 employee number one at outdoor gear exchange, but yeah. Say more about that and what you were kind of into back then, where you were in school, studying, et cetera.
1: Sure. I was just up the hill at the University of Vermont. I was studying environmental uh, studies through the School of Natural Resources. I uh, was really into outdoor outdoor recreation, uh, co-president of the Outing Club, and uh, into basically everything outdoors, uh, but really focused on, on um, rock and ice climbing and got into telemark skiing in college, um, but mountain biking, hiking. Uh, canoeing. Mm-hmm. So pr- pretty well-rounded, pretty broad. Um, yeah, so that that was my history. And uh, and the goal was to uh, build the store so that it was a, a resource to be educational for uh, our customers and so that people could learn about how to uh, safely and enjoyably uh, ex- explore the outdoors in Vermont and uh, traveling abroad uh, to other states or other countries as well.
0: <laughs> could you- Imagine back in the late nineties that you'd have a staff of hundred and fifty people.
1: No, no way i that i mean it's grown organically over time, and the staff has has been incredible. We've had um superb um staff through our entire history. We have employees from the nineties who are still at the store um buyers managers um people in finance so uh, we have we have pretty good staff retention and uh, and a dedicated staff that uh, shares the same mission, vision, and values. Hmm.
0: I want to talk a little bit about the activities that you are participating in these days. I know these things tend to shift around for some of us a bit, and like what you're particularly into now. Uh, first one I know is skiing, and it was pretty fun in. This year, you and I early in the year got to ski together in Sun Valley. And then you hit me up, and we're coming out to Crested Butte and we got to ski in CB. So that was a pretty solid year of uh, getting to link up in a
1: couple good spots. Yeah, that, that was great. Sun Valley was super fun. Um, I'd never skied out there before and I hadn't hit CB uh, after a storm ever. So I've uh, been there a few times, but that was definitely the best snow. It was great to get on some more of the steep terrain and And have it be slightly less bony.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, we brought that snow in for you when we heard you were coming. So Awesome. Um, So, not so much telemarking anymore. Is that correct?
1: No. So, I guess I should explain that too. So, after Gear Exchange, when it started, it was a very core hiking, backpacking shop. um, And we grew over time. I was pretty passionate about rock climbing. I built the first climbing department. And then we got into backcountry skiing through telemarking. Our entire ski selection was Telemark for several years. And then we expanded into kind of rugged touring and backyard cross country. And then alpine touring with, um, fritchy bindings, which is kind of what was available at the mm-hmm. time. And, uh, we've kind of gone sideways or backwards into being a full service, um, s- snow sports shop with, with, uh, snowboards, splitboards boards, alpine touring, alpine and full Nordic selection, um, Non split boards is actually our newest category. It's uh, probably five or so years old. Um, But we've done split boards for 15 or 18 years.
0: Split boards for 15
1: or 18 years. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Limited selection. And, you know, early on it was. Definitely a bit more garagey. We sold quite a few vol split kits where people were, yep. you know, cutting their own boards in half and yep. t nutting things into them. Um, it's I mean, the the progression of split boarding is pretty incredible. The gear is so good right now and um seeing a lot more people uh you know try it out because of that. It's just way more accessible. Hmm.
0: So what is the breakdown for you like these days between inbounds, skiing, backcountry
1: touring? Sure, that sort of depends on the year. Um, I ski inbounds probably half the time and tour half the time. I'd, I'd tour more if there was better snow in general. Um, and I make it to the Nordic centers quite a bit as well. Um, probably the skis I use the most um, are Alti uh, Hawks with an old pair of um, Seeker, three pin boots, but that's just because I take the dogs out walking on them every day, even if I go <laughs> to the mountain or touring. So those nice. get a lot of use.
0: Nice. I like that. Yeah. Uh, in terms of your AT equipment, are you switching things up quite a bit in terms of, you know, checking out um potential new gear to bring into the store? Or when you are out, are you most often on kind of a particular setup
1: um i demo quite a bit of gear and and thankfully some of so much of it's really good right now that um you know i'm quite happy on most of it but um every couple years i switch up my setups in general i've got some deep powder setups that unfortunately don't see as much use and they can last longer Hmm. um yeah okay
0: and then same question i guess when you are skiing inbounds it's you've kind of got your go-to stuff and then you will sometimes vary off just to check out some new skis or bindings
1: or boots. Let's talk boots actually. Yeah. Um, boots, boots are actually probably the hardest thing for me to demo. I'm a 25, five. And Mm -hmm. so the, the early earliest releases don't tend to come in my shell size. Um, but I do, I do try quite a few boots and, uh, and I've been pretty impressed with the new coaches as a, kind of one boot quiver mm-hmm. uh, for someone who needs to just select one boot to do everything with or or if you're going to fly to go skiing and you want to do some touring but you also want something powerful for the resorts because you might be doing long days on groomers or um, just lots of elevation um, I've, I've been really impressed with that boot and it fits mm. my foot pretty well uh for touring uh the Dina Fit Radical Pro uh is Absolutely incredible! Just the ease of transition, the, the single lever. Once you get used to that, it's really hard um, to go to another boot. It can be really high performance. It could have a really good range of motion. But if you're having to undo two buckles and the walk mode and a power strap and pull your um, powder cuff up to mess with it, versus just flipping the walk mode that releases everything else, um, I think that's that's one of the few really revolutionary advances in boots pretty recently. Hmm.
0: So those are a couple boots that you've been into. Um, I'd love to hear your thought about any particular skis or bindings. Now we're talking about you personally, right? I mean, you guys carry a bunch of stuff, but what has been of particular
1: interest to you when you're heading out? Sure. For a dedicated touring setup or something that's rarely going to see the resort, um other than skinning on it i think the denifit radicals are um the best compromise between lightweight and predictable releaseability um if i've got a super lightweight ski i'd consider going with a lighter weight binding but for an everyday touring option i really like the rotating toe and the, the slightly um additional elastic release that makes it a little bit less binary um i've had that on several skis i've used it since it was released it's durable and uh and light enough to to be a good compromise Um, i also think the shift binding clearly is popular with consumers it tends to get panned in some some publications as being the worst of both options or um or you know too heavy or and and i I don't think it's perfect i'd love to see a second climbing um wire or Mm -hmm. a, a taller one in the heel um but i think for a lot of people who you know aren't buying quivers or skis? It's it's the awesome solution for uh, either their wider ski that they're going to use in soft snow, and they either want to tour or have it at the resort. Um, it's easy enough if you are slightly technically inclined that you can swap it between an alpine boot and a touring boot. Also in your you know home garage setup, uh, pretty easily, um, or use a boot like the Cochise, um as your single um, you know driver for it on resort or touring. Um, I've been been really impressed with it, and uh, and uh, all the options out there. I think it's probably the best to get a, a real alpine mm-hmm. binding feel for the down, um, but be able to tour on the way up.
0: It's funny when you you said some media outlets haven't loved it or something. I, it's been funny. I still love that binding. I still tour in it a lot. And we've had some people like write in comments and it's like, what are you talking about? You know, I can't get my brakes to stay up. And, you know, so I know that people have had some issues. We have about five different pairs of shifts Mm -hmm. and we cycle through them and they're on different skis. So it's not as if I only ski, one ski with one pair of shifts and there was a magical setup to them or something and it happens to work. And, you know, our job is like, I'm not going to report on things we haven't experienced. So, you know, I know that Solomon has very much talked about like, listen, you got to get the the setup of these things right. But I am curious, as a shop that sells the binding, what? Have you found on that front, have you found that if, in fact, these bindings are set up correctly, there tend to be minimal issues? Has it been a bit, you know, customers' experiences will vary? What are, like, from your vantage point, what are you finding?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'd say that the cliff Notes answer is they work pretty flawlessly. They work really well. Um, I have no problem selling them to somebody. and, And once they're set up well, they work great. I will have a couple of caveats for that. One of which is um, for smaller people, sometimes it's hard to actually lock it into walk mode, and especially if the bindings are newer. You need to really pull on it to to lock the, the toe. Um, and I haven't had personal issues with it, but I've been out with other people where the bindings have dropped down some. Um, I'm not sure if it's icing. Um, Talking about or, the
0: AFD? the Brakes sorry, or the, AFD?
1: The, no, the Brakes. Breaks. Uh, actually, I've had both mm-hmm. happen, um, and the AFD ha- is is uh, indexed, so it needs to click up into the the next highest spot. And so, if you don't do that, it, it tends to pop down more frequently. Um, I had an early binding that w- I had that issue on, um, and then adjusting it better fixed it for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll also say. Uh, the shifts have been also revolutionary and they've given a lot of Alpine skiers the ability to go touring with their friends. These are people who may have never been touring before and probably, you know, and may you know, maybe they'll transition over and be that'll be a huge part of their winter activities, or maybe they're just always going to do a late spring trip with their buddies that they couldn't go on before because they didn't have the gear. Those people are not used to touring gear and touring gear is more finicky than regular alpine gear. Regular alpine gear, Mm -hmm. you can go to a resort, get a rental, slam Mm -hmm. your feet in it. And it basically works fine. Touring gear, especially if you're out for multiple hours or multiple days, you can have icing, freeze, thaw, snow buildup. And so, you know, making sure people are aware of how to try and mitigate that and, and hopefully have some of the tools and knowledge to deal with it. And the tools aren't super complicated. You can fix a lot of it with a, the credit card and a screwdriver, um, or a snow scraper or something like that. But, um, but they they definitely are more finicky than Alpine bindings. Mm -hmm. They're trying to do a lot more.
0: Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. They are more finicky than an Alpine binding. And if that makes you wildly upset or you don't understand why that's the case, I don't know how to help you anyway. And that is to say, I mean, I'm looking forward to, you know, Seeing that binding continue to evolve, um, you know, and so we'll stay tuned. Absolutely. So, okay, we talked about some boots, had a nice little binding conversation about Dinafit Radicals and Shifts. Anything on the ski side, Um, anything that stands out or thoughts about the skis you're seeing and customer feedback or just something that you yourself have just been really enjoying?
1: Yeah, there, there's so many skis out there. We carry a whole pile of brands. And, um, so, you know, going to the ski demos every year, I'm just blown away at how good all the skis are for essentially their intended uses and how broad many of them are, um, that, you know, you can get something that grips really well on hard pack, but isn't so stiff that it bucks you in the bumps. And uh, you know, if you'd asked me a decade ago, I'd be, you know, 106 underfoot foot daily driver, use it all the time, try to get out in the woods as much as possible. Uh, we've had less uh reliable snowpacks since then. And so I have be- developed more of an affinity for skis in the nineties underfoot. Um, I currently have a pair of Armada Declivity 92s that are going on their third season, I believe. Mm-hmm. And uh and they've been an awesome early season uh, ski, or for after thaws um, when it refreezes, um, and, and I've really been impressed with with a bunch of metal and you know that width, and it just it rails. But you get a little bit of fresh snow or some bumps, or you want to get in the woods, and it'll do fine in all of those um, early season. Hmm. Declivity ninety two. Um, and then we were talking about touring and I said there's a lot of great skis there, ton of good options. I think one of the best bangs for the buck, and just a ski that stands up to every other ski, is the Atomic Backlands um 109 or 107. I think it's a 107 this year, but they played around with that one. And uh every version of that's been been spectacular. The 117 is a bit wide for um New England, but I've skied on that in deeper snow, and it's I had an awesome Jackson trip where that was my main ski for touring um and the 100s and, and narrower versions are also quite popular but i think the 107s are good all around if you're looking to tour you're looking to get into softer snow that's a, a great all-around with
0: hmm. let's talk about trends a little bit we've already touched on a couple maybe but what trends are you seeing either from gear manufacturers or in terms of what your customers are looking to purchase,
1: that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, there's certainly been a convergence of of alpine and backcountry, and whether it's backcountry skiers wanting more performance, wanting to um, tour to more challenging downhills, or um, just ski resort touring, as well as the the sport being um, more widely adopted, and so there's a lot of gear in that crossover and uh, and like we were talking about with the shifts, I think a lot of it is is great because many consumers are looking for a single setup um, or they might have a hard pack setup and a soft snow setup, and the second setup could be good for touring or mm-hmm. they both could be if they're going to be touring at the resort um, and I think there's a lot a lot going on there, and I think the the boots have come a long way there still are alpine boots that kind of have a walkable cuff that's more of a bar mode and if you're used to touring it's going to be fairly restrictive mm-hmm. um but that's becoming a bit more the exception than the norm or at lower price points and if you get to um a boot like the Kochies um that boot doesn't have the biggest range of motion is not the latest but it's not so heavy it's going to hold you back and it's got plenty of range of motion and it and it's not going to also hold you back if you're um just skiing a resort on um, a week-long ski trip, you're going to do that for a couple of days too. Mm-hmm.
0: But you think that the trend of people wanting the flexibility to have a boot that they can walk in and that will ski well, if we're talking about just inbounds, or bindings that will work well inbounds, but they can still go tour. Are you, would you say you're still seeing an uptick in that interest? It's not tapered off.
1: It, it certainly has not tapered off, and I think—I mean, I think it may be locational. I mean, in in northern Vermont, where we are, yeah. there's a lot of access to touring. Many of the resorts allow for before hours, after hours, or open hours touring. Yep. Um, in southern Vermont, there's some touring only. Um, you know, resorts like Escottney used to run lifts, and now they've got uh, skinning sections. So um you're just seeing it more and more. You know, there always used to be a few people in lift line with either touring gear or 50-50 gear, and that's just growing. Um, I think people coming from cities to ski condos and who have a family history of just skiing in the resort, it might be a little bit slower. Um, people who are newer to the sport and, and are being introduced to it from their friends. If their friends are alpine skiers, they probably obviously gravitate that way, but there's more and more people touring and and trying to share that with their friends also. So it's it's definitely growing. Hmm.
0: I do wonder, I mean, at a certain point in time, it seems like we will start to see a taper, right? I mean, either every skier will con- or not every, but the vast majority of skiers will continue to want their gear to be as versatile as possible. To go do both hypothetically whether they actually ever get into the backcountry or not or we're going through a period right now where people are kind of you know touring curious backcountry curious and we will you know in the next three to five to ten years some people will be like yep i actually only want to be in the backcountry so i'm not interested in sort of crossover gear, 50/50 gear, and maybe on the other hand, some people that tried the backcountry stuff are like, you know what? Chairlifts are sweet. And uh so they, you know, don't want to be going 50/50 direction either. So, if you had to predict, right? The first scenario was, no, just more skiers, the vast majority will continue into the foreseeable future want that flexibility, versatility, versus we start seeing people, we we dabbled in maybe the backcountry skiers kind of dabbled in resort, resort skiers dabbled in backcountry. And now that 50-50 is going to start tapering off. Where would you place your money?
1: Yeah, I'd say over the next five years, there's probably going to be a tapering off of, of the growth of touring. I think if you look back on it, there'll still be more people touring or buying crossover gear. Um, and I, and I do think people who are really into touring in most locations, if you want to ski a full season, you need to go to the resort. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's after hours and still skinning the resort, but there's lots of places where there's just not reliable all season snowfall. Um, you know, I, I have a wider pair of skis that I've been using for my kind of storm skis at resorts for years, which is a Ben Chetler 120, which is a super fun ski. And I'd never toured on that because I had a pair of Warden's on it, and uh, you know they were six or seven years old, and it was time to to upgrade, replace, or trade. And and I like that ski so much that I hmm. um, it has a new graphic on it, so that's cool. The graphics are awesome, <laughs> yeah. but um, but the ski ski is great. And I put a pair of shifts on that, and I'll still use it riding lifts. But now I get to tour on it also. So I think, uh, you know, again going back to the shift planning, it just opens up what you can do with. A single pair of skis and and I think that's that's actually great um, for the industry um, and for what it allows different people to do hmm.
0: so you might have heard it's in the papers a lot. looks like we may or may not be you know entering a recession. Um, and I'm also curious just about what you're seeing you know at the at the point of sale. Are you seeing a big uptick in interest in buying used um, or has that been a solid trend? What does the appetite look like to you at outdoor gear exchange when it comes to people's interest in buying new versus buying used
1: I think um you know, we've been in business for twenty seven going on twenty eight years so we've got a pretty broad customer base um, we've got folks who are you know, skiing is their main hobby. And so for them getting the newest product that comes out, um, the latest innovations, that's, that's a huge priority. Um, that being said, there's plenty of other people, um, for whom, you know, buying used makes it possible for them to upgrade gear or get into the sport, try out touring. Um, and, uh, yeah, we've had a, we've had a a strong year. Our consignment sales have been up. Um, and, uh, yeah, like you said, in, in the papers, there's there's news about potential recession, inflation, gas prices. Yeah. Um, I think people are a little bit uh, nervous or worried. Um, we're seeing more people bringing consignment in as they hmm. um, clean out their garages so they can buy Christmas presents or um, get, get the next uh, piece of gear they want. And we're seeing our consignment sales increase as well. Backcountry equipment has been... Used long enough now that there's a pretty good huh. um, pipeline for it mm-hmm. for you know many years going back five to ten years. You know we'd get a a pin tech set up and it would sell in six hours to three days and then we'd have to wait for another one to come in. Huh. And that's um, there's mo- many more of them out there now. So yeah. there are uh, more options for people hmm. for sure.
0: Well you mentioned at the start of this conversation that you actually went to school to study. Let me let me get this right. Was it environmental management?
1: It was environmental
0: studies through the School of Natural Resources. Gotcha. Environmental studies. And before we started recording here, you and I were talking about sustainability and certain initiatives that you're seeing within the kind of snow sports industry Talk a bit about them. Uh, I always think it's interesting, specifically from your position as a shop owner, what you're seeing that uh, you're finding compelling that companies are doing.
1: Yes, this is something that's super important to us, and, uh, and I think if, thinking back over our history, there's individual brands that have taken different initiatives over time, going back many years. Um, it feels like this past year, going to trade shows and talking to brands. About 12 to 18 months, there's really been a huge convergence of the supply chain allowing for more brands to be more sustainable. There's more recycled materials available, a wider variety of materials, uh, and more brands that have decided to invest in being more sustainable by using recycled materials, recycled materials, looking at circular processes, reducing packaging, shifting to 100% recycled packaging. You know, they're all Great steps, and more still needs to be done. But it's it's moving in a really good direction. Hmm.
0: You were talking also about plastic in particular. Can you say a bit more about what you're kind of seeing, or maybe seeing less of
1: in this regard? Sure. Some brands have moved to plastic-free packaging. Uh, Burton, in particular, has done a great job with that. Uh, Prana. On the apparel side is packaging uh they used to they eliminated all their poly bags and used to package in a single bag inside a uh shipping box hmm. and now they switched to a recyclable paper hmm. um, um wrapper for each piece of clothing and um but I mean that is one of the 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 kind of dirty secrets in in manufacturing hmm. wholesale and retail is there's so much film plastic, whether it's wrapping all the pallets for transport, every item inside a box and uh and that can be challenging to recycle. For years we've taken it to different grocery stores like like Shaw's or Hannaford's where they backhaul it and recycle it. Um and that was getting logistically harder and harder to do. Uh especially during COVID. Yeah. And we've been working locally with the uh Chittenden Solid Waste District, our local waste district, um and City Market, a local uh co-op supermarket to figure out how to how to tackle this from a, a retailer perspective and Burton's actually come on board as a location where The uh, pilot project can take place, and we're bagging all of that film plastic and partnering with other local businesses to actually get it turned into, I think it gets recycled into plastic lumber for decks and things like that, but to essentially be recycled and turned into something useful rather than just get landfilled.
0: Hmm. How far away would you guess we are, I mean, if ever, to eliminating plastic for packaging?
1: our culture is really wrapped up in things looking brand new yeah when they get when when they're on the shelves and uh and packaging is super important for that i don't necessarily know if just replacing a lot of lightweight plastic with heavier cardboard packaging is mm-hmm. is the best answer um but i do think moving to more sustainable materials uh instead of things that are based on fossil fuels is is really the answer um i think it's a ways off still but i think I think we're making steps towards it. Hmm.
0: You're in an interesting position. I mean, as you're thinking through, first of all, which products to carry, but then also being able to see what customers are caring about. On the one hand, I guess if you see that a given company is doing something that you find particularly compelling on the sustainability front or sort of the circular economy, you can choose to carry more of that or not carry other things. I guess I'm curious to what extent that does play into, you know, the actual process, the the actual buying process at outdoor gear exchange. Then forgive me for the second question, but then are you seeing an uptick in walk-in customers caring more about who is this brand? How are they making this jacket or ski? Where are we there versus where, what you've seen since 1995?
1: Sure. I mean, I think walk-in customers are, are way more educated than they ever have been before. I mean, thinking back to 1995, no one had a supercomputer in their pocket where they could look anything up. Yeah. You know, you'd get into a debate at a bar and you'd have to figure it out through reasoning or memory. Mm-hmm. Um, so in-store, people are... Comparing, you know, going to manufacturers' websites, finding out more information, uh, or doing it in advance. Um, so I think I think that's great that people have more information at their fingertips. Um, it's, I think it's pretty a mixed bag. Some of our customers are super focused on on climate change and sustainability and recycled product and you know things that are made locally or made sustainably. And other people, it's not you know in their top two or three. Biggest concerns. A lot of people, you know, cost is the number one driver. Yeah. Um, performance, recommendation from a friend. Those are all pretty, pretty valuable for people making decisions. Um, we definitely, uh, you know, try to find those companies, especially smaller companies that are doing kind of revolutionary things or, or, um, you know, taking risks that larger companies can't, and trying to support them. I think with our position in the industry, one of the things we do try to do is advocate internally with our brands to be more sustainable and um from our vantage point being able to say this is what another brand is doing have you considered
0: mm-hmm.
1: reducing your packaging, eliminating your packaging, transitioning to um a, a different material. Um I think another big thing that's come out recently is there's, you know, uh Gore-Tex in particular has diff- has uh, you know, PFOA free DWRs yep. and and for breathable and uh And the chemicals that are being used seem to be much more environmentally preferable, um, which uh, is something I think most consumers don't know anything about. But ultimately, is going to be much better for the planet and and for individuals who buy the product too.
0: I know it's a busy time of year. Um, I should probably let you get back to it. But before I let you go... Tell us a little bit more about some of the services that you guys are offering at Outdoor Gear Exchange. We've talked a lot about specific product and the rest, but uh, if someone's going to be in the Burlington area and wants to come through, say a bit about the
1: services side. Absolutely. Uh, the entire OG staff is is awesome. And like I said, our goal is to educate consumers and give them as much information as possible to, so they can make the most informed decisions. And, and we carry that straight through the service um, and our service staff are in-depth bike and ski mechanics and on the on the snow sports side we do everything you'd expect from a ski shop we, we mount bindings um we have a pretty dedicated crew of telemarkers so we've got um we can talk about you know boot center versus pin line hmm. and get things mounted up the way you want but we also do uh tuning and uh beyond that we'll do base patches and base welds and we'll if you damage an edge we can we can pull it out and repair it And, uh, and yeah, full, full line, uh, or full service boot fitting, custom insoles, punches, all that. Hmm. So, I mean, ultimately the goal is to get someone in a boot that fits with no modification to minimal modification. You should certainly try and find a shape that matches your foot as best as possible. Um, if it's not perfect and a thermal mold on a moldable liner doesn't fix it, we can, you know, take it to the next level with punching, grinding, uh, or taking up volume with foam. Well, Mike,
0: appreciate it. It's good to talk. It's even more fun to talk when we're actually skiing together. So, I don't really know, is. any what are the odds you make it out this way this
1: season? Um, haven't booked my winter travel yet, uh-huh. so I'd say it's still still there's, possible. There's
0: a negotiation to be had here. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, you, you you tell me when the storm's coming and okay. I'll
0: come right out. <laughs> okay. I'll just, I'll send you screenshots from open snow and uh, yeah, uh, book accordingly. Um, yeah.
1: I look forward to it. That'd be fun.
0: I'd love to have you back out. Yeah. Um, that was a really fun, fun year. Um, and kind of the fact that we were skiing together in Sun Valley didn't really make any sense per se, uh, but, but fun to get our first turns together there and then, and then get you on kind of the home turf here. Yeah, that was great yeah well i look forward to it um i'll send you the screenshots on the on the snow the snow uh forecasts and uh Perfect. hey say hi to the team at outdoor gear exchange and uh yeah good luck uh getting through you know the the holiday season
1: here thank you it's uh it's it's busy but it's also energizing and fun cool cool Yeah.
0: all right sir i'll talk to you soon all right see you, jonathan All right. Well, it is now time for our crashes and close calls segment. Last week, you got to hear Blister reviewer Kara Williard talk about a pretty bad situation she got herself into in Japan. And this week, we have Joe Humphreys from Canada talking about a ski trip he had in New Zealand. So listen up to this. And here is what Joe had to say about his trip, and that calamity. Joe writes, Back in the day, I was working a season in Wanaka, New Zealand, and skiing at Snow Park. Rest in peace, Snow Park. I had been building up my confidence on the triple line, which consisted of a 35-foot, 45-foot, and 60-foot jump. I had been hitting the 35 and 45-footers over the past few days and was finally feeling ready to get sendy, on the 60-footer. It was a clear blue day, mild temps, and the snow speed felt good. I planned to hit a straight air and nothing else, just to get a sense of the time I'd be spending in the air. Throughout the morning, I had been watching other riders from the chair sending it, and I had a good idea of the speed needed to clear the jump. No speed checks needed. I dropped in from the top and hit the 30 and 45 footers just straight air, feeling nervous but feeling like the best skier on the mountain because I was. There you go, Joe. Um, as I landed on the down ramp of the 45 footer and carried into the ramp of the 60 footer, I did one small speed check, then sent it off the lip. As I was hanging about 20 feet in the air, I could see the knuckle and the landing out in front of me and I realized that I was going to come up short. Luckily, I had a good three or four seconds to spend in the air to contemplate how much this was going to hurt and to send a quick prayer to 8-pound, 6-ounce newborn infant Jesus. As that cold, icy knuckle was flying upwards toward my delicate little feet, I had the wherewithal to utter a quick, pitiful, oh fuck, before I ricocheted into the ether. I found myself at the bottom of the landing ramp with my skis and various other paraphernalia strewn about the landing zone. Unbeknownst to me at the time, due to adrenaline and the fact that my boot was acting as kind of a cast, I had actually shattered my left calcaneus, aka the heel bone. All I knew at the time was that my foot hurt, so I was brought to the first aid hut, and as the kind patroller tending to me helped Hold my tight, frozen, two-piece overlap boot off of my shattered heel. I nearly passed out. Oh, man, Joe. Uh, still, as my buddy drove me back into town down the bumpy dirt road to the medical clinic for an x-ray, I was in denial that my season might be over, even though every bump in the road sent a spear of fire shooting up through my foot into my leg. And at first it seemed like my denial was justified. The x-ray tech at the clinic said that I had no fractures. It was just a bone bruise and I would be back skiing in a couple weeks. They just needed to send the images down to the radiologist at the nearest hospital which happened to be 340 kilometers away and we would hear back in a few days with confirmation. So I got a pair of crutches and started putting weight on my foot the next day Even though it was excruciating. Turns out, six days later, I was informed that my heel was in fact fractured into three pieces. My season was over. But being young and dumb and having limited travel, insurance, and finances, I booked myself on a flight back to Canada, said goodbye to my friends, and made the long, rough four day journey from Wanaka to Canada on buses and planes. Without a cast on. Once I was back in Canada with our wonderful socialist universal health care, I was able to get another x-ray done and a walking boot, as well as all the necessary follow-up care and physiotherapy once my boot came off, all for free. And I was back skiing by Christmas. And I haven't hit another 60-footer since. So that is Joe's story. Uh, Joe, that sounds absolutely excruciating, and I am very happy to hear that you were well taken care of once you finally made your way back to Canada, but I think the moral of the story that we are telling around here is that for those people, even if you're in a country that has phenomenal healthcare, if you are outside of that country and get hurt skiing or mountain biking or kayaking or what have you, there can still be some pretty significant bills that you're going to get stuck paying. So our big plea is for all of you just to do your research and figure out what actually would happen to you if you're wrecked and what would you be on the hook to pay for. And since the answer is for many, many millions of people, you are going to be on the hook for a heck of a lot of money. This is why we've created this blister plus spot membership where you will receive $25,000 worth of injury insurance that is per incident in a year. And that is with zero deductible if and when the inevitable accidents and injuries happen to those of us skiing or snowboarding or mountain bike or kayaking or climbing, et cetera. So, We will include a link to this Blister Plus Spot membership in the show notes of this episode. We've got a ton of information about this on our website. Again, do your research, figure out how much you would actually have to spend to visit an emergency room, an ambulance ride in a foreign country. Our whole goal with this new Blister Plus Spot membership and coverage is that when you're wrecked, you don't also get financially wrecked. So anyway, Joe, thank you so much for that incredibly well-written and painful story. Uh, Send us a note, Joe, uh, with your address, and I will happily send you a blister t-shirt. Just tell us your size and give us the address, and we are going to send that along. We really appreciate you writing in. And for the rest of you, tell us your stories. Tell us about your close calls, your calamities, or your crashes. And if we read them on Gear 30, I might do the same. I'm going to send you a shirt as well. So let's see. That then brings us to the end of this edition of Gear 30. And okay, I'm going to sneak into what we're celebrating. I'm about to go upstairs to see the very patient girl who I just started seeing a bit ago. She's upstairs and we're going to have a couple of bees knees made with Bar Hill gin And um, then we're heading out to dinner. So that's what I'm off to go do. I guess if we had to say one other thing we're celebrating, we finally got a ton of relationship questions in for our next Reviewing the News episode of the Blister podcast. Cody Townsend and I will be recording this conversation tomorrow morning. It's currently Thursday, December 29th. So Cody and I are going to be offering our first bits of relationship advice, and you guys can see exactly how good or bad we are at that. So um, I'm looking forward to it. We've got some great questions in, and uh, so that episode will go up this Monday over on our Blister podcast, and we're going to review some news, but I'm not going to lie. I'm looking forward to hitting some of these uh, very good mountain town relationship questions. So that's what we've got for you, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. And we will talk to you real soon.